definitely think that little buy low, sell high aspect is a little feather in the cap of the overall strategy. Welcome to the 10th episode of our deep dive series on Canadian bank earnings. Today, we're covering the first quarter 2023 bank earnings announcements, and we will return each quarter on this channel to update you on the latest financial results. My name is Daniel Stanley. I'm an ETF specialist at BMO Exchange Traded Funds, and I'm joined today by my friends and colleagues, Chris Heeks, Portfolio Manager for all of BMO's equity and multi-asset ETFs, and Saurabh Movahedi, Managing Director, Financials Research at BMO Capital Markets. Today, we're going to cover the recent bank earnings announcements and what they mean for investors and the Canadian economy, as well as looking at different ETF strategies that give you exposure to the Canadian banks. So without further ado, Chris and Saurabh, thank you for taking the time to join me this morning. And Saurabh, I want to start with you this morning because last quarter, when we had this conversation, you noted that the markets were being somewhat impatient with banks that reported poor earnings versus expectations. And that theme certainly seemed to continue this quarter with a couple of the bank stock prices falling in that 3 to 5% range after their earnings announcements. Can you talk to us about how the banks did this quarter versus expectations and talk to us a little bit about that market reaction as well? Good to be back. Uh, thanks for having me back. Uh, so look, the results this quarter, I would say that there were uh, of the six large banks, five beat. Uh, and I think there were probably, you know, the quality of the beat would have factored into how the stock prices did. Maybe I'll come back to that in a second. And one missed and the sole miss, I think, got penalized for it uh, uh, notably. You've heard us talk about banks in Canada having a, a diversified kind of business mix, and that revenue diversification comes through both lending margins, uh, you know, the margin they make through taking deposits, paying something on that, and then doing the maturity transformation of uh, short dated deposits into longer dated loans and collecting a spread on that. But they obviously also have uh, wealth businesses and they have capital markets businesses and you know, a source of a bright spot, a driver of the beats, if you will, this quarter, not the sole, but an important driver of the beats this quarter would have been their trading operations. Specifically, if you look at a bank like uh, CIBC, if you look at a bank like uh, Royal, I mean, these are banks, uh, I won't comment on BMO just because uh, we don't cover BMO, but those would be two banks that would have had a uh, record trading revenue quarters, uh, which would have helped uh, with the results. So that's the good news. We had some beats, and I guess depending on where the positioning on the specific names would have been, if a name had been unloved and unattended and they beat, I think it probably caught off some people off guard and uh, the stock's favorably reacted. I'd say the outperformer in that regard probably was CIBC this quarter. The beat relative to uh, consensus was uh, double digits, 13% earnings beat. And uh, the other side of the spectrum, you know, I think Scotiabank undergoing a bit of a 
management change, uh, still trying to figure out what its genetic potential is, I'll say, you know, uh, continuing to guide numbers down. I think probably the guidance was not uh, well heeded to. So they missed estimates by around 8%. And I think the stock reaction spoke to it. Um, so look, when we come, when we stand back and you think about it, one of the key, I guess, takeaways from the quarter for us was that the the cycle seems to be lengthened. You know, when we were having some of these calls um, over the past number of uh, maybe quarters, we would have talked about hard landing that translated into soft landing, and we seem to be in extended flight. Although that seems to be changing day by day, uh, but the point of that is. From a credit quality or higher loan loss provision, I think we've certainly kicked the can down the road by at least another quarter. And I think uh, bank investors tend to not get excited about results that are not um, repeatable. And you know, record trading is probably not repeatable. And while credit costs are normalizing, that rate of normalization is probably a little bit slower than... Uh, uh, than we were looking for and and delayed anyway. And so in that regard, I think you have to exercise a bit of patience uh, to get kind of rewarded. We think there is a downside protection here, but uh, but generally not something that would have gotten folks on the sideline excited uh, to get involved. That's great. Thank, thank you, Saurabh. And yeah, that was an interesting quarter to see that bright spot in trading revenue. I, I feel like we have not talked about the capital markets and the trading revenue uh, as a bright spot in quite some quarters. And clearly that was linked to the, you know, the volatility in, in the markets over the last, uh, the last quarter. Um, Chris, I want to turn things over to you. And, and, you know, we, when we talk to Sorab, we talk about specific banks like CIBC having a 13% beat or, or uh, Scotia missing by 8%. But when we talk about ETFs, we can talk about the banks as a group. And, and when you talk about the banks as a group, there there seems to be this pattern developing in ZEB, which is the BMO Equal Weight Bank ETF, um, over the last six months. And, and it seems to be trading sort of between that $36, $37 range on the high end. And then it seems to dip down to the $32, $33 range on the low end. And in, in fact, as of this morning, it was trading around right at the high end at $35.76. So back at the higher end of that range. Chris, what's your takeaway on this trading movement with ZEB? Yeah, thanks, Dan. I think from a trading perspective, you know, you, you look where we were last year, you know, we were just starting, you know, the interest rate hiking cycle, you know, ZEB back uh, last year was probably around $40. But obviously, as that interest rate, you know, increases and inflation concerns, you know, brought the whole market down, including including banks over the course of last year. And I think where we've been the last six months is, you know, towards the tail end of the rate hiking cycle, and, and obviously the market's looking for normalization. Um, but to Sarab's point, perhaps normalization in terms of the market's hopes, uh, let's say, or expectations, you know, has been a little slower to normalize. So, you know, when I look at the trading pattern, and I think it's the banks very much like like the market in general, it's a little bit of a holding pattern and, and trying to just look for an end to this kind of uh, higher interest rate or or peak inflation, if you will. And we're getting some positive signs 
Um, you know, I'd say in Canada, it looks like the normalization is, is, is ahead of pace relative to the U.S. You know, the last kind of CPI prints in, in, in Canada were a uh, little bit under where they were expected. So not only did they come down, but they came down even a little more than expectations. Uh, you just saw the Bank of Canada pause on interest rate hikes. Um, there's not much more priced into the market right now, perhaps another 25 basis points. But, you know, very much looking like end of the cycle. And I think that's going to be positive news for the banks to eventually break out of that range to the upside. Uh, you look in the U.S., it's a little it's a little stickier. Um, you know, inflation has been a little, little more persistent. That data has been, I wouldn't say bad, but not as good as in Canada. You know, that being said, there's, there's some very important data prints happening, you know, right now. Um, and, and we'll see how that continues to develop. You know, I do think we're kind of, towards the end, but there's still going to be some volatility to uh, to probably manage just as we do this last kind of call it two innings or uh, 10-15% of the interest rate hiking cycle. So that's, I think what we're seeing in the US, I think that's essentially what's kind of contributing to this range kind of bound behavior. Of course, we're going to be keeping a close eye for, you know, a potential economic slowdown or hard landing. Overall, you know, labor markets are, are still quite healthy. And so, you know, the potential of a, a moderate recession or a moderate softer landing, I think it's still there. Cycle back to, you know, putting it all together. You know, I think really, I think the way to look at it is long-term opportunity. And, you know, we know the long-term opportunity with Canadian banks has historically been, you know, excellent, outperformed the Canadian equity broad market. You're looking at 4.5% yield right now. So, you know, do you put every last penny to work right now? Well, you could debate, you know, maybe you stage into it over the next few months. But I think, you know, buying, 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 uh, buying now with a long term hold pattern, you know, is going to work out possibly for investors. And, you know, we again, we might break that range to the downside, but it'll be temporary, you know, the, the you know, the, the, the banks, um, you know, have that that track record in the market in general uh, that will will eventually break it out to the upside as as everything normalizes. Just could take a little bit of time. So that's sort of the way I'd look for it, and you know, encourage investors as always take that long term approach. Yeah, thanks, Chris, for that reminder. That that's a really important point because you know we talk about the price range of ZEB, um, but we have spoken um, on on every single one of these podcasts at the end of the day about the importance of that the dividend yield uh, of the Canadian banks as an income producer, uh, providing that dividend to Canadian investors. And to your point, four and a half percent yield uh, get paid to wait is uh, quite an attractive uh, yield in that respect. Um, I want to come back to uh, Sorab. Chris, you made an interesting point about we're keeping our eye out for a hard landing. Sorab, coming back to you, you know, when we last spoke, you you had mentioned that you had reduced 2023 earnings expectations for the banks. And I think it was by about 5%, correct me if I'm wrong. And, and based on the assumption of a short and shallow recession, and if I look at some of those um, red flags or things to look out for in the banks, you know, none of the banks raised dividends this quarter. Provisions for loan losses seem to be higher across the board. You know, the three-month tenure curve remains inverted. Talk to us a little bit about loan growth, capital ratios. Was there anything that surprised you this quarter? And and does your assumption of that short, shallow recession still hold? Okay, I'll start off by saying the fact that they did not raise dividends was not a surprise. They obviously are on uh, 
most are on a semi-annual cycle and a couple are on an annual cycle. So next quarter would really be the kind of the quarter we would be looking for dividend um, hikes. Um, and, and just as a reminder, you know, the target dividend payout ratio is in that 40 to 50% range. And it wouldn't be surprising to us if they bump up against the, the upper end of that range. In other words, dividend growth may still be in that typical, call it mid-single digits, even if they may not have the same uh, level of earnings growth. But the good news is they got off to a good start this year, as I mentioned, uh, thanks to um, the trading. When you kind of sit back and you think about loan growth and credit costs and the macro backdrop, we won't make calls around the economy contradictory to what our economics department does. So I think the economics department probably over the last couple of days is is just going back and double checking and rethinking, I suppose, if uh, or reconfirming their view on the uh, the GDP growth outlook and the unemployment growth outlook, and those would be the primary drivers of our forecasts. Um, but I will say, and you mentioned it, that uh, we also pay uh, a lot of attention to that three-year, ten-month curve, which remains inverted, and uh, so that's that's old news now. But I think what we would like to see is when that stops. Kind of and starts kind of uh, reverting back to a little bit more normalization historically. So I'm not trying to say this is a hard and fast rule, but historically, that would have been a good leading indicator of how far out we are from peak loan losses or credit uh, provisioning for the banks for that cycle. So notice I'm not suggesting it will give us a sense of how big that hump will be. But I think once we start seeing that kind of the bottom of that, the worst of it are behind us and maybe, you know, still a, a inverted curve, but less and less of an inverted curve, then, you know, you could probably say, all right, so maybe we're around 12, 18 months out from that, uh, uh, that peak of the credit cycle. The credit cycle uh, and credit provisioning, uh, given the composition of the loan books of these uh, Canadian banks being so skewed, to varying degrees uh, to, towards Canadian residential mortgages, I think will be the quality of it will be highly dependent on the, the level of employment because at the end of the day, our experiences, Canadian borrowers will continue to service their debt for as long as they have the ability to do so. And uh, usually that ability outside of, you know, death or divorce or some of those types of uh, life life-altering type events uh, comes back to whether or not they're employed. The size of the mortgage loans on the bank's balance sheets is obviously huge, uh, $1.67 trillion. So a lot of large numbers kind of kick in. Uh, what do I mean by that? When you think about growth, just growing on $1.7 trillion by itself is going to uh, necessitate some slowdown relative to last year. So last year, for example, you had very strong double-digit type growth. Maybe the last couple of years, you've had very robust uh, loan growth uh, driven by the mortgage lending activities of the banks. You know, by virtue of the fact that you have higher rates, higher borrowing costs, uh, coupled with a regulatory regime that has made, uh, you know, that has increased the capital requirements 
not just on mortgages, just on balance for the banks through the domestic stability buffer uh, by about 50 basis points last December, I would think of those as uh, traffic calming measures <laughs> insofar as, uh, you know, if the banks have to get the margins on the loans, obviously, for their shareholders, but that the demand or the availability of loans will be driven by the demand for those loans. And the demand is slowing down, I think, to some extent here as well. So so the good news, bad news there is that you have slower loan growth, um, uh, but, but, uh, but you will also therefore have higher internal capital generation, generally speaking, all else equal. In other words, if you're not growing your balance sheet, the existing balance sheet continues to throw off the cash and more of that cash because of slower growth is just going to get kind of retained. And so that provides, I would say, a bit of a um, helpful kind of support to the capital ratios. And so all of the banks, uh, for example, are talking about at least the ones that don't have special situations like acquisitions and so on pending, are talking about uh, working their way towards a 12% common equity tier one ratio by the end of this fiscal year, you know, that's that's a nice, healthy capital level. Normally, I mean, the regulatory minimum is at 11. That regulatory minimum does have a counter-cyclical buffer already factored in. So a little bit of belts and suspenders, if you will, implicit in that um, uh, 12%. Just lastly, we've touched, I mean, I've talked about it and, and you brought it up again. When you think about uh, credit costs, obviously it's a big, um, drag, if you will, on, on earnings. But I just want to put things in, in context. So we have six banks collectively this past quarter. So the first quarter that ended, they would have collectively reported about $15.5 billion of uh, net income to their common shareholders. $15.5 billion. That number a year ago this quarter would have been $15.8 billion. Okay, so $15.8 billion of earnings down around 2% to $15.5 billion of earnings. But the credit costs were maybe $400 million across the group last year. They were up by $2 billion uh, this, this quarter, so 2.5 billion. So you had $2 billion of increased credit costs, yet uh, that's a drag, if you will, on, on earnings on a pre-tax basis, yet uh, your earnings were only down 2%, so a testament to revenue generation capabilities elsewhere. That $2.5 billion, just for, uh, for context, works out to around 26 basis points of their overall loan books, and obviously, their strategies always change from bank to bank. But if you take a through the cycle view of average loan losses for the group, let's say uh, through ebbs and flows of the of a credit uh, cycle, maybe you'd be looking for something in the neighborhood of around 30, 35, maybe even basis points. So we're up uh, $2 billion, 26 basis points from $400 million, four basis points, let's say, last year. But we are, it, it would not be surprising to us for this 26 basis points to continue to drift higher as, you know, if the average is supposed to be in the 30 to 35 basis point range, so to speak, based on uh, uh, the mix of the business that they have. So lots of moving parts. 
But the bottom line here is the yield curve will give us a sense of what the peak credit may look like for this cycle. If if you believe historical context, that could be in the 30, 35 basis points range. So we're still around five to 10 basis points away from that. And the yield curve can tell us when we're around 12 to 18 months out from that. We think we're getting close to that. The valuation multiple, obviously, of the banks reflects it to some extent. Well, we just don't know if you could get the re-rating until you have comfort that uh, you know you have visibility into that. But we're not worried about balance sheet or capital adequacy of the system. So it, it, it's a question of patience uh, and time before you kind of get uh, get going, I think, on, on this system that usually generates that 10 to 12% total return between dividends, earnings, and uh, at this point in the cycle, some degree of uh, re-rating as well. That's great, Saurabh. I, I really love the context that you bring to the table when you sort of put these numbers, because when they come out in quarterly earnings, they seem like big numbers, um, and sometimes they can seem negative. But when you put them in context, for example, those credit costs, uh, you know, the fact that they were $400 million, uh, last year, now $2 billion, and, and net income has just dropped, you know, that that very small 2%. That, that is a very, very important context that I think we have to have when we're having these discussions. Um, Chris, I want to come back to you. And I want to talk, uh, go back to talk about the ZEB itself as an ETF, the structure of ZEB. Um, it is, of course, an equal weight bank ETF, which means, as advertised, um, it is equally weighted. But I feel like we've had these uh, many of these podcasts and we've never really actually talked about specifically what that means. Um, Tell us a little bit about what equal weighting means, how the process works, and importantly, how that can be sort of thought of as a built-in buy-low, sell-high strategy. Yeah, thanks, Dan. And it's it's amazing. Something simple is equal weight, but there's there's actually lots to talk about. I mean, the whole philosophy of equal weighting is to just round out exposure. And so when we talk about Canadian banks, just getting exposure to think about it like the average bank. You know, a lot of indexes are built off market capitalization. And if you do that approach, then you, you know, it's fine, but it, but you're overweight those bigger banks. And then in some cases, depending on the sector, you end up really overweight the big companies and, and then the smaller companies don't get uh, much kind of exposure or input to the exposure, you know, overall. So that's the principle of equal weighting is just balancing that exposure. It's more about exposure to the group than the the big companies, uh, you know, in this case, Royal and TD. But uh, so that's, that's the thought. So we have the six big banks in Canada, you know, um, in our equal weight strategy, you know, and then to get into the details, obviously we don't want to trade every day. So we don't want to rebalance every day. The way we implement the equal weight is we rebalance twice a year in March and September. And uh, we actually have a rebalance coming up relatively soon. And uh, and what we do is we just kind of set everything back to equal weight at that time. And then what happens from there is obviously as as the markets evolve in between periods, uh, that weight will drift around a little bit. So you'll have your outperformers. Uh, will you know their weights will increase slightly versus a, a pure equal weight, and then your underperformers will will decrease their weight will decrease in the portfolio slightly. 
Um, and then so what happens obviously at the next rebalance uh, is we'll again bring that back to equal weight. So what you end up doing in an equal weight strategy, like you said, it's uh, you're going to sell the outperformers a little bit to bring them back to out underweight, and you're going to buy the the underperformers to bring them back to underweight. So it's a little bit of a you know what we call a mean reversion strategy, right? Um, buy low, sell high, and you know that's what it's 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 a kind of a nice feather in the cap of the strategy. I think for a couple reasons. One is you know there's real benefit with I think disciplined rebalance. Portfolios now a six bank portfolio is a relatively straightforward, but there's still benefit to having a disciplined rebalance uh, framework in your portfolio, and we see that kind of across our ETF landscape in a lot of different places, like you know, low volatility dividends. Again, uh, maybe a topic for another bo- podcast, of, of course, right? But uh, you have that discipline, and then the other thing, like you said, is you got a bit of that buy low, sell high built into the mechanics of the rebalance. And, you know, that actually tends to work out well with respect to the Canadian banks. So your underperformers uh, tend to, uh, not always, but tend to kind of be your outperformers in the subsequent periods. You know, they tend to trade as a group and, you know, they, you know, they, some, some get ahead of the pack, some fall behind the pack, but they tend to kind of track a similar trajectory so by adding in that little bit of buy low, sell high, I think it actually does add a little bit of value to the fund. And, and of course, you know, it's a one ticket solution for the investor. So, you know, this all happens without, you know, any action required on the investor's part. It's just a, a disciplined process that's going to happen twice a year to maintain that exposure. But yeah, definitely think that little buy low, sell high aspect is, you know, a little feather in the cap of the overall strategy. Yeah, th- thanks for that, Chris. I love it. I mean, whether you call it mean reversion, buy low, sell high, um, look, I- investing people and their money, it, it is very psychological. And uh, it, having that discipline in place embedded in the ETF is a fantastic advantage to uh, to owning ZEB. Uh, Sorab, I want to come back to you. Uh, we we haven't mentioned TD, and 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 TD was in the news. Uh, we've talked about this in the past: the issue about risks that that go along with inorganic acquisitions, and 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 the announcement that that TD doesn't expect to get the regulatory approval to close its first Horizon acquisition before that May twenty seventh deadline. Sort of, it seems to reinforce this message. Is can you talk a little bit about it? Is this sort of delay, is it common? Can you even speculate as to why this might be happening? And, and I guess most importantly, is it a concern for TD's U.S. expansion plans? The quick answer is we just don't have a whole lot of detail here. What we do know is that it's peculiar that uh, maybe two or three weeks after TD and First Horizon, the acquisition target here, I put out a joint press release uh, saying that uh, they've both kind of mutually agreed to push out uh, the determination date, if you will, to May 27th. You would get a filing out of um, First Horizon that would suggest that TD doesn't expect that May 27th uh, uh, timeline to be met. So something kind of transpired. Look, we are, I don't want to say we're spoiled, but, you know, in Canada, we're lucky we deal with really one regulator. When you go into the U.S., you know, you probably have a uh, a web of regulators you have to deal with. In the case of TD, which 
again, in Canada, we may take this for granted because all of our big six banks are considered to be domestically, systemically important. In a global context, only Royal Bank and TD make it to the list of uh, globally systemically important financial institutions. So in this regard, you know, you have a regulatory framework in the U.S. trying to sort through an acquisition, which always takes a little bit longer. And I think involving a GCFI probably complicates matters. So the fact that it's delayed is not uncommon. The fact that it's delayed without details to us. Uh, was this something procedural? Is this something uh, from a, you know, is this a regulatory uh, constraint? You know, that uncertainty in our view is a bit of a net negative. And so, you know, whether or not it's a concern for TD's U.S. expansion plans, uh, Dan, I think will really depend on the reason uh, that uh, that this delay has happened. If the reason for the delay is that there is a regulatory restriction on a globally systemically important bank to continue to acquire depository or deposit-taking institutions, then I would say, yes, it would be a negative uh, from a TD perspective, because uh, now you would have a bank that arguably is capital rich, but with more limited vectors to deploy that capital um, inorganically. Um, so. Maybe I'll leave it there. Uh, obviously, more to come on this as we learn uh, additional details as they kind of transpire. But um, I, I do think this makes uh, earnings targets for TD, at least for us fundamental analysts, a little bit more of a moving target, uh, which probably will weigh on the earnings multiple that investors are willing to put on. No, I appreciate that insight, Sareb. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, it, it it certainly it, it seemed to be a surprise to uh, to, to investors, and uh, it, it certainly was front page of the news when when that came out. Um, guys, I want to shift gears, and and we've talked about the issue of real estate uh, very often. I know you guys aren't real estate specialists, but but I want to bring it back to the banks, and in particular, uh, Sareb, we you talked about the the composition of of uh, of a Canadian bank's loan book being very, very heavily weighted toward mortgages. And, and so I want to end the discussion today on the news, that data that CIBC released showing that $52 billion worth of their mortgages, which is roughly about 20% of the bank's $263 billion loan portfolio, um, that, that they're in a position where the borrower's monthly payments was not high enough to cover even the interest portion of the loans and that the bank has started to allow these borrowers to increase the amortization period, adding unpaid interest onto their original loan or principal. Can I ask you, let's, Chris, let's start with you and then we'll go to Sorab. Is this a surprise? And what does it mean for the banks in general and, and real estate in Canada? Yeah, thanks. I mean, I guess it's a surprise in that, uh, you know, we haven't seen this kind of dynamic in a long time, obviously, to have inflation where it is and interest rates where they where they are. It's 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 been a while. Um, you know, to me, this seems like a prudent way of dealing with a bit of a shock in the system is, you know, obviously working with borrowers to 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 amend and adjust, you know, um, 
agreements so that they, you know, continue to have, you know, those agreements fulfilled eventually over time. So, um, you know, I think this is just a case of, uh, you know, having to, to work with borrowers. Um, certainly, we we know that, you know, affordability is going to be an issue, you know, with interest rates where they are, you know, and real estate prices adjusted a bit, but, you know, uh, qualifying at five, six, seven percent mortgage rates, you know, it's 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 uh you know it doesn't take a doesn't doesn't take a an ETF portfolio manager or a, you know or a fin, you know financial expert to understand that that's that's going to be costly for people. So you know the way you know I look at it is you know this this sounds like a very reasonable thing to do. You know I think as we get this normalization over the period of a couple of years, you know you know inflation is moving in the right direction and and, and especially in Canada and you know it looks like it's coming down to kind of more normalized levels over time. Maybe it won't come all the way down to a 1%, but, you know, if we get back to kind of 2 3%, get those interest rates down accordingly, you know, I think this is this is a normalization period and this is, uh, you know, this is, this is, um, this is going to be, uh, you know, something that, that borrowers and banks alike are going to negotiate. But, you know, just as, you know, a silver lining that, uh, you know, has been mentioned a couple of times on the call is just having those diversified product mixes from a bank perspective, you know, just to take it back to bank investing, it's nice that you can have, you know, trading revenue really be a, a wind in the sales and, and in other businesses as well to, you know, help mitigate maybe per, perhaps there's less mortgages getting underwritten these days type of thing. So so that's a good thing for banks overall that they have a diversified business. So that'd be my thought there. Dan, what I would say is uh, maybe a couple of things. So you're right. You quoted some statistics from CIBC. Just to be crystal clear, that would not be unique to CIBC. They're just, uh, you know, they've taken the lead, I suppose, in giving good disclosure. Um, it is a commoditized product, the mortgage uh, product in Canada. So it would be difficult, I guess not impossible, but it would be highly improbable that in a very uh, well-defined, homogeneous, commoditized product, you would have distinct <laughs> credit quality differences from one bank uh, to the other, at least amongst the big six, especially given uh, the, you know, the sandbox that the regulator permits them to underwrite in. So um, I tend to agree uh, more broadly with, uh, with Chris that the alternative <laughs> of not working with borrowers to uh, keep them in the home and figuring out a new payment schedule is probably more far more painful uh, for everyone, including the economy. So, at the end of the day, I think the right answer is to try and keep borrowers who are able to ultimately service their debt with that with a little bit of a, a benefit of time. And and that's just my own personal view. And I think from a bank's perspective, you know, bank investors probably worry about this uh, from two fronts. Number one. What does this mean as far as credit quality and kind of go back to the earlier part of the conversation? Or do I have a big time bomb as far as credit losses on my hand? And I think the other part of it is, if not, then if we have borrowers, mortgage holders that are trying to service their debt responsibly, does that just mean there is less of their available cash flows every month to go elsewhere? You pick it. Do we have to drive the car one more year? Do we go out for dinner as many times? You know, can we take a vacation? So all of that kind of stuff kind of factors in. The way we look at it, and I think, you know, time will tell, but we don't expect this to be 
a uh, credit event or a credit shock or a tail risk of sorts coming at the banks from a credit quality perspective. But this will be a potential drag on the economic activity, again, from that discretionary spending of the consumer. So that's a potential net negative. Um, And then I would suspect as uh, the banks, you know, in a Canadian-made solution, work with the regulators and the legislators to keep folks in their homes uh, that have been kind of stretched over here, as amortization kind of increases, as you have some of these triggers on the mortgages, there's no doubt that the risk associated with that loan goes up. And one way to address the risk associated with that loan would be to obviously provision incrementally more for it. But another way is to also increase the risk weight um, and therefore the amount of capital that is held at the banks. So the banks are well capitalized and it could very well be that they're moving towards a 12% uh, uh, CET1 ratio, like I mentioned, uh, capital ratio, regulatory capital ratio, like I mentioned earlier in the call, in anticipation of uh, some uh, negative migration in credit quality and risk weighting so that they could absorb it. So Canadian housing, as you know, has been a very important topic and it's a, it continues to be a very important topic, but uh, we're not trying to, uh, you know, roll our shoulders or or uh, brush it under the <laughs> the rug, so to speak. But you do have responsible participants in the ecosystem trying to make sure that it is um, it is wrestled in as a overall eco friendly, so to speak. Uh, fashion as possible. And I think that will mean that the banks will have a role to play, but I don't think it will mean that the banks will have to wear the burden of it. And remember, most of these mortgages that we're talking about don't uh, come up for renewal probably until 2024. So we have the benefit of time, I'll call it, that if rates actually start to come back down, they may get closer to the levels that some of these mortgages would have been qualified at. Because again, Rates may have been at zero, mortgage rates may have been low, but the regulator would have required the Canadian banks anyway, the big six, to have qualified these at a bit of a stressed kind of level. So there is some embedded buffer, if you will, um, stress test in in here, Um, but that's more of an academic exercise as a practical matter, I think. Delaying, you know, call it extend and delay is probably better than the alternative which is foreclose and write off, um, which, you know, uh, uh, so I think we we chin up for a bit of a slower growth outlook, uh, but at the expense of not having to take large losses. That's great. Sorab, Chris, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, the very unfinancial statement I would make is it, it, it sounds like the banks are, at the end of the day, they're rolling with the punches. There's, uh, Sorab, as you mentioned, the, the, there's responsible participants. Uh, we have the benefit of time. Uh, doing the alternative uh, would, would certainly be worse. Guys, thank you very much. Uh, I just want to remind the audience that you can get exposure 
to Canadian banks via ZEB, uh, which trades on the TSX, that is the Canadian Equal Weight Bank ETF. Uh, you can also get exposure to some of our other uh, bank ETFs. We didn't talk about our US bank ETFs, ZUB, ZBK, which also trade on the uh, TSX. If you have any questions, please visit our ETF dashboard at BMO etfs.ca for research, news, and insights. Guys, that's all for today, folks. I want to thank you for tuning in. Please join us for our next update on Canadian banks in three months' time. The viewpoints expressed by the portfolio managers represent their assessment of the markets at the time of publication. Those views are subject to change without notice at any time without any kind of notice. The information contained herein is not and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice to any party. Investments should be evaluated relative to the individual's investment objectives, and professional advice should be obtained with respect to any circumstance. Any statement that necessarily depends on future events may be a forward-looking statement. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of performance. Views from the Desk has been brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management.